Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski. On with us today is Dr. Donna Vogel. Hi, Donna. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. So it's my understanding that you are going to help us with something that is so important here at Hopkins. It's so important to learners and junior faculty and mid-career and late-career retirees, and that's mentoring. We all need mentors, so please help us out today. How do we be a good mentor and be a good mentee? Great. I've chosen as a title, Be a Memorable Mentor. And the word memorable is in there. Perhaps I chose it unconsciously because I'm going to start you off with a trip down memory lane. This is in part taken from a little article that I wrote back in 2002. And every time I talk about mentoring, I keep going back and looking at it. And I keep saying, you know, this is still good. So I'm going to start off with that. I've updated it very slightly, but it originally appeared, and you can't find it online. I tried to find it. I used to be able to have a link to it. I, I couldn't find it. I looked for it last night, could not find it, but I actually had a hard copy reprint in my basement, ah. which I, I dug up and made a PDF out of. And this was published in the science and technology newsletter of my alma mater, Bryn Mawr College, in 2002, is a newsletter for science and technology alumni called The Mentoring Mindset. And I'm going to start you off just reading the first paragraph of it, because this is the anecdote that got me started on this construct. It goes like this. Remember, this is 2002. One day last year, I was meeting with a delegation from a foreign research agency. They had recently achieved their goal of funding a target number of postdoctoral fellowships, but were just beginning to face the issues of quality in research training. English was not their first language. And one of them asked me, what is the difference between a supervisor and a mentor? Needing to give a concise and instantly comprehensible answer, I replied, a mentor provides the trainee every opportunity to develop into an independent scientist. Now, over the years since then and going forward, I've given a lot of thought to what that meant. What are those opportunities that a mentor should provide a trainee to become independent? Where do you find the opportunity and where are they being ignored? And a great deal has been written and a great deal has been said about mentoring, specifically about constructive and destructive mentoring relationships. And I'm going to try not to cover ground we've heard before. I want to stick to the positive today and how to build it. And my bias is my background. I see this through the lens of biomedical research training because that's where I spent a large part of my career working with the research trainee community. But I think the principles should be widely applicable beyond that specific arena. As you alluded, it's not just students and postdocs who get mentoring, and it's not just senior faculty who do mentoring people at all levels of their professional career find themselves on both sides of the mentor-mentee dyad. Now, most 
research supervisors understand that their job is to provide information, facts, and knowledge and techniques relating to getting the project performed, what we need to work on is giving the mentees tools, not just facts, but tools that they will need to thrive in that independent career, wherever it may take them. So let's start with that mentor-mentee dyad. And that's not strictly true. When I say mentor, these days I think we all understand that we mean more and more the mentoring team. So have that in mind always that by mentor, we really mean members of a mentoring team because we know now that that's really the best way to do it. There will be typically a primary mentor with other members of the team providing different aspects. It might be different career levels. It might be different types of expertise. It might be knowledge working in a different area or a different system, but they bring different things. But they'll be a primary mentor as the nominal leader of the team. The point is, it's a dyad. It's a two-way street. Recognize that there are expectations and responsibilities on both sides of the relationship. So when I mention a responsibility, imagine that for every responsibility, there is a corresponding expectation of the same thing from the other partner. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So let's start out demonstrating what I mean by using the project itself, because the project, and again, we're assuming a a research mentor situation, so there will be a project. In life mentoring, it might take a different form, but let's assume it's a, a traditional research project. The project itself is going to form the core or the backbone of the relationship. And one way you can imagine this, and I wish we had video because I could be at a whiteboard and I would draw this for you. But one way to imagine it is make a vertical line and then across it, make four horizontal lines. Okay. To the left, you're going to have mentor expectations slash responsibilities. On the right-hand side, you're going to have mentee expectations and responsibilities, and they will correspond the way that I just intimated. For every responsibility, there is a corresponding expectation from the person on the other side. For example, when we're talking about the project, the mentor's responsibility and the mentee's expectation are that the mentor will suggest a project and offer some judgment about its importance and its feasibility. So it's not just, I have this set of experiments that needs doing. It's, hmm, here's something that ought to work and will help you make an impact. The trainee's responsibility and the mentor's expectation is that the trainee will carry out the work to the best of their ability. And they will do a proper job and do it in accord with legal and ethical standards. So that's what I mean. That each 
arm of this tree, if you will, is a pair, is a matched pair, responsibilities and expectations. So can you so give with us that an example where that's a mismatch or are you going to get to that in this tree where, I mean, I'm, I'm drawing this as you're talking, mm-hmm. uh, but where would that be, where does, where does it fall apart at some point? Well, let's talk, let's go directly to what I just said. Uh, proper mentoring premise would be this is a good project for you because you'll be able to get it done. It'll give you good results and then it'll form the basis of your ongoing career. You can take part with you and you can build on it. The wrong way to do that is here's a project I have that needs somebody to get it done and you're just a pair of hands. Uh-huh. Classic, right? Right. Okay. So keeping that construct in mind, I want to talk about four categories of the mentor-mentee relationship that are beyond the project itself, that are more about the career and the going forward. Now, there is some overlap among these. The distinction among them is somewhat artificial, but I've chosen to do it that way just for clarity. And it goes like this. Number one, visibility. The mentor's responsibility is to provide opportunities to become visible. What is that? To give talks, to go to meetings, to go to other departments and give seminars, to send in abstracts and have posters and presentations at conferences. It is also to find opportunities for awards, to tell the student or the trainee that there's some travel money you can apply for that maybe you didn't know about or to nominate them for an award if it's their job to make that nomination. But when it comes to visibility, the trainee also has responsibilities, and that is to follow up on those opportunities, to go ahead and write and submit those abstracts, and to take an active part. We talked in a previous podcast about becoming active in professional societies, and that's a key piece right here. It's the responsibility of the mentee to become that active participant and to get out there and not just show up at the meeting, but to take an active role. The next arm of the tree is communication. And here, not dissimilarly, the mentor's responsibility is to find opportunity for developing communication skills. That is, if there are courses or workshops or training in speaking, in writing, in putting together a grant application, any kind of leadership development skills that those mentees would benefit from and might not know about, the mentor should provide those opportunities and let the student or the postdoc get out of the lab and go take the class. There are still way too many unfortunate situations where there are opportunities available and the mentee cannot take that class because they feel chained to the bench. Or in the clinic for junior faculty members. They're Correct. Right. Now, the, the uh, mentee's responsibility on the communication side is to 
pursue those opportunities to engage actively in learning. It's not just checking off a box. It's, I really need to learn this skill. It could be the dreaded uh, ethics training. You know, everybody has to take ethics training, and when you become a faculty member, you have to teach ethics training. That's a box that has to get checked. But it's important. So stay awake. Right. Participate. And when you particularly are taking those communications training, that's critical. You've really got to put yourself into it, so don't just show up. And if your own mentor is not the right person to teach you this or to show you where to go, find somebody who is. And this may be the case where maybe you are working in a situation with somebody who's really brilliant but relatively junior and hasn't had a lot of experience in institutional politics, for example, and doesn't know the lay of the land, you're going to have to enlist a mentor who can be more of a more of a career or a life skills mentor and not so much a scientific mentor, but someone who can help you get ahead. Mm-hmm. Next, employability. So this is similar to communication, but with a specific focus on the job market. And this would be less important for faculty as mentees, but certainly for mentors. So if you are a faculty member and you have a mentee who is soon to complete training and is going out on the job market, it's really important that you let that person participate in job skills training. Things like interviewing skills and writing your CV, and there's so many different ways we write CVs. That's a whole nother, another talk about how many CVs do you need and what's the difference between a resume and a CV and all of that. So people need to learn those things because they need to do it right. It's also your job to make introductions. And some of your listeners may not see that so much as part of their job, but it really is. You know people. It will help your trainees and your mentees in their careers if they make connections with people you know who can be of, I would say, mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When your mentees do well, you do well, so it helps you too. That's right. And networking opportunities, closely related, it may not be a formal introduction, but it may just putting them in touch with someone who might become a collaborator, who might have a job opening, if not now, then in the future, help them build their network. That's a big part of why you're there. And I would urgently make the point, and this is a personal soapbox of mine, I'll admit my bias, keep an open mind to what I like to call diverse careers. If you have a mentee who does not want to follow in your own footsteps, and the mini me, uh and I'm also a poster child, (laughs) um, if you want to go into something that is not a clone of your supervisor, so, so you're the faculty member and you have such a person working with you, 
And if what they want to what they want to do is not what you know best, give them the chance to learn from others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't hold them back. Help them launch. And it may mean they have to talk to other people, help them find those other people. Right. So you give them the opportunities. Their responsibility is to follow up on them because you're going out of your way to help them. And they are not just helping themselves, but also showing appreciation to you by following up on the effort that you've put in. Trainees could also seek their own sources because there are student societies and postdoctoral organizations and groups within groups that they can find on their own that you as a faculty member are not part of. So they have another channel. And it's their own job to take it upon themselves to find those opportunities. Now, the last one is something that maybe you're not expecting or not expecting in quite this way. The last point is evaluation. And that's really essential for closing the loop. What do I mean? Well, take a look at the word. The root of evaluation comes from the word value. It's how we put value on performance, on productivity, all those things that count when you're trying to get ahead in life. And there's little point to setting expectations for people unless we know how well they're meeting those expectations. You know, what's the point? Why say these are the things that you should be doing if we're not measuring how well they measure up? So we have a problem. Evaluation has a bad image. It has a bad reputation. There's that dread mm-hmm. of the annual performance review. There's that, that existential terror. <laughs> but guess what? You cannot get recognition. You cannot advance. You cannot get ahead unless there is documentation. You're not going to get awards. You're not going to get promotions. You're not going to become known unless someone is noting our accomplishments. Right. So it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. We have to be measured. We have to be evaluated because without it, we can't point to our accomplishments and say, look at this. I'm this good. Right. So the mentor's responsibility is to provide both formal evaluations, and most places require that, but also regular informal feedback to prevent problems from starting wherever that's possible and to deal with those that do develop before they cause a lot of damage. It is the mentee's responsibility to understand that there's a need for evaluation to not see it that's something that's arbitrarily imposed on them just because it's the rule, but it's there for a reason, because otherwise no one will know how excellent you are. And to accept reasonable feedback constructively and respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to say about that is, again, a personal soapbox issue of mine. 
mentoring ability really should be part of how mentors are evaluated. Because that way you get into the opposite of a vicious cycle. You get into a virtuous cycle of what will eventually be more and more mentoring success. I love that virtuous cycle versus vicious cycle. I love that. Yeah, vicious cycles are just kind of spiral out of, into nowhere and they're awful. A virtuous cycle. You know what I really like about this whole snippet, Donna, is is your focus on this responsibility and expectation. And all those four categories that you're talking about involving visibility, communication, employability, evaluation, I kept looking up at the, at the, the graphic, this little matrix that you made me draw, and I looked at the responsibility and expectation every time. And gosh, if we were to upfront make sure everyone was on the same page, mentors and mentees, every time mm-hmm. about responsibilities and expectations, a lot of these issues, I mean, what a great evaluation or what a great experience or a, a lot better experience rather than assuming that everyone knows I've been mentoring, so I, I, I know I have these set of assumptions, so I will behave as I've always behaved and perhaps skipping and jumping over things and not realizing that, oh, oh, in this particular instance, this mentee is not, we're not on the same page here with responsibilities and expectations. And then flipping Mm. it around, the mentee saying, well, I don't know what's going on here. I've never been a mentee before. I'll just Mm -hmm. do whatever without Mm -hmm. recognizing these, these very specific dancing, the waltz of responsibility, expectation on both sides. I think that so points to uh, a contract, if you will, be it Mm -hmm. formal or minimally informally, that everybody, those dyads start from this framework of understanding versus jumping into an assumption. Well, you're a postdoc, so you've been through a doctoral program, so clearly you must know how to be a mentee. Wrong assumption. Mm. Or mm. You're, a men- you're a funded mentor. You've got grants and R01, so you must be a good mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, all these assumptions we tend to make. And then sometimes we get in those vicious cycles as opposed to what you're suggesting, which would be nurturing this virtuous cycle. I love it. Great. <laughs> Classic Dr. Donna Vogel. That's correct. <laughs> well, this has been a great... Uh, little snippet on being a memorable mentor. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot from it as I did. I can't help but learning something every time I hang out with this woman. So Dr. Donna Vogel, thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast. You want to say goodbye to anybody before I tell them how to reach you? Just want to throw in one bit that I didn't mention. There is a framework that's been established for postdocs specifically, but the idea can be much more widely used called the Individual Development Plan, and it's available through the AAAS. AAAS stands for what? Oh, the people who put out science, the Association American whatever science, triple A-S, you know. Triple A-S, IDPs, that's right. That's the thing. Yeah. Individual development plans. Yeah, we have a big thing at Hopkins. I'm sure everybody is on T32s now. They're requiring mentoring. And um, yeah, everybody at Hopkins, our Jennifer Haythornthwaite is actually 
doing mandatory training for um in basic sciences now for uh, excellent it's, it's a thing. excellent yeah yeah and i also you reminded me donna um folks who are listening on the facultyfactory.org website our producer mr casey callanan has put together a really nice searchable database of faculty development literature that you can search by mentorship or you could search by Donna Vogel and scholarship will come up there. So um, go to the website if you want to take a look or find anything uh, that Donna has mentioned, Dr. Vogel's mentioned, and uh, look for other literature. But we'll, you know, some of our past uh, guests on the podcast have their literature there. So, or send me an email if you'd like me to add your literature, your scholarship around faculty affairs and faculty development. But again, you've been listening to Dr. Donna Vogel learning about how to be a memorable mentor. And she is on LinkedIn and you can also reach her at Dr. That's D-R dot Donna dot Vogel, V-O-G-E-L at gmail.com. And again, Thanks for joining us in the Faculty Factory podcast. Check back in regularly, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Dr. Vogel. Bye now. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.